When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Well, there's no Dan here. It's actually just Bernie. I'm introducing another Dan podcaster, actually, Danelli Bellelli. And this is a special episode. It's a little interesting. Um, this episode is done by one of my other famous favorite podcasters, Danelli Bellelli. And he's a very famous podcaster, if you guys don't know him. And I was very honored to work with him on the research and putting together this episode for his podcast. And just real quick, how it came about, I just want to share with you guys, because I really appreciate the fan of history listeners to, to me to be able to do this. So about a year ago, I was listening to his podcast, and it was a free episode. He's under behind a paywall for now called... Uh, Luminary, which I am a subscriber of just to listen to his podcast because I really like him. So I heard this episode where he's, he actually had four other podcasters that he allowed to do some episodes under on his channel because he's very popular. And during that episode, he also talked about how cool other podcasters were and how helpful everybody was in the history podcasting sphere anyway. And I'd have to even extend that to the YouTube um, history sphere because I've met a lot of great people from all over the world. And at the end of this particular introduction to his podcast that I was speaking of, he said he was going to do an episode on something else, a big what if in history. And as I was listening to it, I said, oh, that sounds like something right up our alley that we know. And it's on the siege of Jerusalem. And I so I thought, you know what, I'll just reach out to him and ask him. If he wanted any help with it. And we did. I should say I did. He said, I would love to work with you on it. We worked together for like a good year on it, you know, back and forth. And this is the episode. I think the fan of history listeners will enjoy this because Dan Nanelli is a fantastic podcaster. He's a great storyteller. And 
he did a great job with this episode. And the reason I think you guys will like it is you'll see a lot of our fingerprints, I'll say, on it. Just things that, you know, I wasn't involved in the Fan of History podcast when we did the Siege of Jerusalem. Um, but Dan, our Dan, gave me all his notes. And, of course, I listened to the, his podcast over and I did a ton of research. And even Gary Stevens' History in the Bible helped me with a lot of stuff. So I helped put this together and I'm proud of it. And I'm happy that I was able to do it. And, you know, so without further ado... Please enjoy this special episode that originally appeared on the History on Fire podcast about the siege of Jerusalem. I hope you guys enjoy it. Hello, before we get started, one quick note. The episode you're about to hear is from the current season of History on Fire. To listen to all the other new episodes as they are released, all you need to do is to subscribe to the Luminary channel on Apple Podcasts or go directly on Luminary, that would be luminary.link forward slash history. That's luminary.link forward slash history. History on Fire is presented by Luminary. Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in human experience, you've come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. goes a history on fire. Before we get going with today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to Bernie from Fan of History podcast, who has done a phenomenal job helping me out with notes, with ideas, with all sorts of stuff in preparation for this episode. And also a big thank you to Gary from History in the Bible. And while I'm at it, uh, speaking of Bernie from Fano History Podcast, I want to give a shout out to his daughter, who is a very talented musician. And if you want to check out her music, it's lilymaomusic.com. L I L Y M A O music.com. With this out of the way, let's jump into this. What we shall play with today is one of the biggest what ifs of all of human history. And what I mean by what if is a single event that, had it turned out differently, would have changed history in profound and dramatic ways. The specific tale I'm talking about, the one we'll be playing with today, the year for it is uh, 701 before Common Era, or BC, BC, however you want, it's the same stuff. Now, if you were huddled inside Jerusalem at this time, you may have shuddered at the thundering noise you heard coming from outside the city. The noise wasn't caused by the elements, by a storm, or by the mass movements of herds of wild animals. What you heard was the noise of an enemy army that was gathered outside the walls of the city. 
and not just any enemy army, mind you. This was the most powerful military machine that existed in that part of the world. A military machine so powerful as to ground to dust anyone who had dared to stand against them. Over the years, they had already destroyed countless cities, murdered thousands of people and crushed many armies. The Assyrians, the authors of all that destruction, were now standing outside your city, ready to knock on the door. And this was not the kind of knock you could ignore, you know, pretending you're not home or dismissing the solicitors with an excuse. The Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem were all too aware that the soldiers outside were there for one reason and one reason only, which is to annihilate your nation and kill you. And you just happen to be their next target. You know, when I picture this story, I imagine there's a scene from the Lord of the Rings movies, from the second one, uh, during the siege of Elm's Deep, when you see all these uh, civilians barricaded inside, hearing the sounds of the orc army outside, and you can see the fear on their faces, and, you know, the, the actors do a great job conveying the emotion of what it must have felt like. And I always felt that that scene perfectly captures the terror of the civilians inside the town before the attack. You know, the men on the walls, they knew the odds were extremely high, almost assured that before long their heads would be decorating the tips of Assyrian spears. The women knew that scores of Assyrian soldiers were looking forward to breaking through the defenses and chasing them screaming into the streets before dragging them by the hair, gang-raping them and murdering them. All their children knew they would be either carried off into slavery if they were lucky, or burned alive if they were less lucky, thereby meeting the same destiny of the children of many cities defeated by the Assyrians. It's possible that the younger children were blissfully unaware of the details of what was about to happen, but it's unlikely that they didn't feel the sheer terror gripping their siblings, their mothers and fathers and everyone else they knew. There was only one wall that stood between you and the monsters outside. You know, many, many towns before had uh, relied on a wall to keep the monsters out. And now they were no more. And all this was happening because your king had made the very unwise choice to rebel against the most powerful empire in that part of the world. What I just described here is definitely emotionally gripping and intense, but it doesn't exactly sound particularly unusual. After all, in the history of humanity, that same scene has been repeated more times than it can be remembered in pretty much any nation out there. You know, the siege of a town, the terror of the defenders praying that the walls will hold, a conquering force bent on bloodshed and plunder. Nothing about this is even remotely unique. So it seems I'm either teasing you or I deserve an F for my effort at making my case that this was a history-changing event. 
So in light of that, I better hurry up and score some points for my argument. Since a story whose lead characters are named Sennacherib and Ezekiah, and happened almost 3,000 years ago, is not exactly the kind of stuff that people talk about at parties. I wasn't aware of the importance of this tale until I ran into an essay written by renowned historian William H. McNeil, who perfectly captured why we should care. McNeil's essay, in case you're interested, is found in a book called What If?, uh, which is all about how history could have turned out if some events had played out in some way other than the way they did. McNeil's argument is that had things between these guys turned out differently, and according to all logic they should have turned out differently, then the world we live in today would be radically different. McNeil writes, What if Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had conquered Jerusalem in 701 BC, when he led his imperial army against a coalition of Egyptian, Phoenician, Philistine and Jewish enemies, and handily defeated them all. This, it seems to me, is the greatest might-have-been of all military history. Why? Well, let's get to the point. Let's cut to the chase and just tell you why. It's extremely likely, in fact, that had the Assyrians conquered Jerusalem in the same way that they had conquered every other city in Judah until that point, you know, Judah being the state that Jerusalem was in at the time, there were there had been two Hebrew states, Judah and Israel. Israel was no more, and we're going to get into why that is. The only surviving one was Judah, and even then, by that point, only Jerusalem stood. Well, had that happened, had they taken Jerusalem, probably Judaism would have disappeared from the pages of history, or at the very least would have become completely unrecognizable. And with no Judaism, then Christianity would have never been born. And of course, without Judaism and Christianity, Islam would have never seen the light of day either. So stop for a second. And try to imagine what history without the three main Western religions would look like. You know, the, the existence of Judaism, Christianity and Islam has affected world history to such a degree that it is pretty much impossible to imagine the ramifications, whether positive or negative that they may be, of what it would be like if these three religions never came into the picture. So when McNeil wrote... Military events, even seemingly insignificant episodes, can have unforeseen consequences, ones that may not become apparent at the time they happen, and occasionally not even for centuries. Well, when applied to our story, that's the understatement of the century. You know, before the end of this episode, we'll tackle how a different outcome to the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 BCE would have crashed in their infancy Western monotheism. But in order to properly tell the story, context is everything. So to, for the sake of getting the ball rolling, we'll start a few centuries earlier, skimming somewhat quickly through a chaotic mix of uh, Hebrew history and mythology. Of course, I'm not gonna go into any degree of detail into the previous history of the Jewish people, since that would take forever, 
and by the time we are done with that it would be your great-grandchildren who will get to hear the end of this episode so what i'll do is something different since ultimately this is a story about the survival of western monotheism I'll focus on just mentioning at least briefly a few important points regarding the development of Jewish monotheism prior to our story. Now, let me preface by saying this story is infinitely messier and more complicated than most of us think it is, uh, if, we, if we haven't taken a deep dive into the evidence already, because Problem number one, speaking of evidence, is that the furthest we go back in time, the less solid the evidence gets. This, of course, applies to all of history. And the history of monotheism in general, and Judaism in specific, is clearly no exception. Even though the bulk of, of this stuff was written in the 6th century BCE, or possibly even a bit later, the Torah speaks of events that supposedly happened centuries prior to that time. Uh, the problem is that there's not a whole lot of evidence to back them up. And even that's putting it generously. So we can't exactly take at face value the claims made in the Torah about the origins of Jewish monotheism, as if they were historical facts. If we stick to purely verifiable evidence, some scholars argue that one of the first, if not the very first, example of monotheism in the West comes from Egypt. In the 1300s before Common Era, a pharaoh named Akhenaton started a radical religious revolution. You know, traditional ancient Egyptian religion was polytheistic. But when he took power, Akhenaton began to argue that only one god, the sun god, was worthy of worship, whereas all the other gods of the Egyptian pantheon were to be discarded. Now, of course, as you may imagine, people who have worshipped a certain way for generations didn't take kindly to just one guy showing up and telling them that they had done it all wrong and that all their beloved gods and goddesses were fake and they should now abandon them in favor of only one god. On the other hand, when the one guy telling you to do this is the pharaoh, and he holds absolute power, well, then there's not a whole lot you can do but follow along. So the story goes that Akhenaton went at it with fundamentalist zeal, using his political power to squash any dissenting religious interpretation. And this was a rather abrupt departure from the way things had been done. You know, the very concept of religious persecution may have not been entirely foreign, but definitely was not a common thing. And the reason is simple, is in the world of polytheism, there was always room to add another god to the pantheon. There was no point arguing over this, you know, you prefer worshipping the divine in a particular form and I prefer another one, no problem. You know, all of them could be valid paths in polytheism. However, once you argue that only one god is real, and the others are either fake or demons, well then, now the dynamics have changed. Because if there is only one god and one right way to worship, then it follows that all others must be wrong. And perhaps not even just wrong, but straight up evil. 
So if only one approach is right, mixing the one and only truth with falsehood would not be an acceptable choice. So it's not exactly surprising that Akhenaton's turn toward monotheism went hand-in-hand with the religious persecution of anyone who didn't follow the official party line. Sigmund Freud even went so far as saying religious intolerance was inevitably born with the belief in one God. Now, certainly, Akhenaton did nothing to prove Freud's quote wrong. Akhenaton prohibited any visual representation of any other gods, destroyed their temples, and generally cracked down hard. You know, never before a religion that asked for everyone to avoid worshipping other gods. So either way, it doesn't really matter in the long run, because this religious revolution did not last long in Egypt. You know, the second Akhenaton died, most Egyptians thought, screw that guy, and happily went back to worshipping in their usual many gods. There's some ultra-nerdy academic debate on whether Akhenaton's religion was truly monotheistic or not, and it revolves on whether he believed in the existence of only one god, or whether he worshipped only one god but believed that other gods existed, albeit not worthy of worship. Now, this is a bit of missing the forest for the trees, since ultimately it doesn't matter. You know What matters is that something that was either strict monotheism or at least its close cousin, showed up in the history of the Mediterranean world. Since we don't really have any kind of solid historical proof for Jewish monotheism prior to this, and since the book of Exodus in the Torah tells of monotheistic Jewish people fleeing Egypt, well, then quite a few people have drawn a link between the two, and argue that Akhenaton's experiment was the spark for Jewish monotheism. Sigmund Freud wrote a whole book about this, in which he suggests that Moses may have actually been a native Egyptian, a follower of Pharaoh Akhenaton, who led his followers out of Egypt once Akhenaton's partisans lost the Egyptian culture wars that followed the death of the Pharaoh. People who follow this line of thinking point to the fact that Moses is indeed an Egyptian name, argue that the story of his infancy, about being abandoned by a mother in a basket by the river and being rescued by someone in the royal household, is identical to the story of King Sargon, the famous first ruler of the Akkadian Empire from back in the 2300s before Common Era. And they also point to even more importantly, that Psalm 104 from uh, Hebrew scriptures is incredibly similar to Akhenaton's great hymn to Aten, to, to his, um, you know, one of his religious hymns. Now, as you may imagine, scholars have been arguing back and forth about this, and I just don't want to get lost into the rabbit hole. But, so either way, it's an interesting possibility, but it's far from proven. When it comes to Jewish monotheism, let's look at a couple of key concepts in the Moses story in Exodus. Again, let me remind you, there's 0.0 evidence to back up the story of enslaved Jewish people in Egypt fleeing under Moses' guidance. 
There are no ancient sources outside of the Torah and no credible archaeological evidence. So there's a pretty decent chance that everything in this story may be mythology more than history. Nonetheless, it's extremely important to mention it since it lays the foundation for a key theme in Jewish history, specifically the clash between monotheistic Jews against polytheistic Jews. The specific event I want to start with is an iconic one in the theology of Western religions. According to the tale, Hebrew people have fled Egypt under Moses' leadership, and at some point during this migration, Moses climbed to the top of Mount Sinai for a face-to-face meeting with the one and only God. Here you have thunder and lightning in the air, and in the midst of all this dramatic setting, the tale of God giving to Moses the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Well, Mel Brooks would say 15 commandments, but that's a different story. You know, the essential laws forming the moral foundations of Western religions. Which, by the way, is a bit of an echo of a story from earlier times from the Babylonian Hammurabi, who also said that he received the tablets with the laws from the sun god. This is such a central, climactic episode that even people who have never read the Bible are familiar with it. Less well-known, however, but by no means less important, is what happens right after this moment. Because what happens after the delivery of the Ten Commandments is truly the core of our story. You know, Because while Moses is hanging out with God at the top, at the bottom of the mountain, some people are having second thoughts about this business of monotheism. You know, a whole bunch of days have passed since Moses left. They have all seen the thunder and lightning, there's been an earthquake. People are not even sure if he's even ever coming back. You know, maybe he's dead, maybe, who knows. So, tired with waiting. Some folks were not exactly fully sold on Moses' insistent that monotheism was the way to go. They decided to have, uh, to go back to their previous practices and they would fashion the statue of a golden calf, which was the kind of a classic symbol for one of the fertility deities. They were worshipped in those days by people around the Middle East, and they have a religious festival about it. Now, the way the story is told in uh, Hebrew scriptures is, is actually pretty... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's funny because there's this dialogue taking place between God and Moses where God is kind of yelling at Moses saying, you know, your people have corrupted themselves. And pretty much like in a nutshell, he say, I'm going to kill them all and you know, I'll save you because you're good, but I'll start a new nation from you, but I'm going to kill them all. And they go back and forth with Moses saying, why are you mad against your people? You know, they're kind of like mom and dad fighting a misbehaving kid, and each one is saying, your son has done this. No, your son has. And also Moses appeals to God's sense of self-image by adding, you know, what would the Egyptians say, seeing that you save these people only to just kill them in the middle of the desert? Don't do that. And oddly enough, it works. And God is like, eh, okay, I see your point. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but really not by much, actually, if you read the story. That's more or less the way it goes. He goes like, fine, but I'm mad, so you need to deal with it. Moses say, okay, okay, I'll deal with it. Just don't kill them all. So Moses comes down from the mountain, and he sees exactly what had been previewed you know there's this full-on orgiastic ritual going on with wild music naked bodies of men and women dancing themselves into ecstasy and who knows what else is going on to argue that moses is unhappy about this is a big understatement but rather than doing the obvious and saying hey guys would you mind keeping the music down and or having some serious conversation about what are you doing? You know, I thought we all agreed that we are going to worship only the one God. Moses smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments and gathers his most loyal followers. And I'm going to quote here from the speech as reported in, uh, in Hebrew scriptures in the Bible. He goes, because, you know, now they have a decision to make. There's the, you have monotheistic Jews rallying around Moses, trying to figure out what do we do with these other people. Yeah, they are our neighbors. Yes, they are our friends. Some they may even be family. But they are worshipping other gods. What to do, what to do. Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Let's try that one again. So the advice that Moses gives to his followers is put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So, everyone always hears about the Ten Commandments, but often people are not quite as familiar with this massacre that happens immediately afterwards, when Moses organizes 
you know, you can't really call it much other than a death squad. To massacre by hacking them to pieces with swords some 3,000 fellow Jews who did not honor the right god. Because, you know, that's the answer to the question, how do you deal with people who don't properly worship the one true god who wrote in stone that you shouldn't kill people? Well, of course you need to kill them, right? If you find this confusing, by the way, you're not alone. This is not a case of self-defense. This is not killing people in war. This is monotheistic Hebrew people massacring polytheistic Hebrew people because they chose to follow a different religious tradition. In many ways, it seems like it's in this story that you find the origin of the theology of holy war, of the very concept of holy war. This is sort of an iconic moment in the development of that stuff. And by the way, just to make sure you get the message right, a few pages later, there's another tale that reinforces the same concept. Fast forward a few days, weeks, months, I forgot the exact timeline, but not that long, and some 24,000 Hebrew people died in a plague that had been sent by God as punishment. Why? Because many of them had married foreign women, women from people that they had met along the way during this journey out of Egypt, and they had agreed to honor their spouses' gods, and so started, again, mixing other gods with the one god. And this won't do, according to Moses. He said, this is why we are dying of this plague, is because God is upset, so the only thing to do now is to divorce your foreign wives, and repent and go back to the worship of the one God. While he's delivering a speech, there's a Hebrew man comes back in, in, in view of everybody who's listening to Moses, and he's going with his foreign wife, clearly not casting her aside, clearly it's kind of a screw you to Moses, this is the way he acts. So in the midst of this, Phineas, who was a Moses loyalist, followed this guy and his wife. In the meantime, they had gone back into their tent. And, you know, the Bible doesn't exactly spell it out, but it's pretty clear that they started having sex. So you have this uh, husband and wife go back to their tent. They start having sex. And Phineas enters the tent and stick a spear through both of them, skewering them on the spot and killing them. And extremely pleased with this act, God stopped the plague and spared the remaining Hebrew people. Uh, Quoting from scripture, I say, Phineas has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, in that he was zealous for my sake, so that I did not destroy the children of Israel in my jealousy. Make what you will of what I just told you, but this is one of the key themes that is repeated over and over and over again in the Torah and in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. The enduring, usually bloody conflict between monotheistic and polytheistic Hebrew people. This may sound strange since today we think of Judaism as a monotheistic tradition, but it was definitely not always so. Um, both biblical literature and archaeology, in fact, make it perfectly clear that a vast number of Hebrew people continue to worship a variety of gods over the centuries. Uh, for example, many did worship the one high god, 
but they also worship other gods. Among them, check this out for a strange concept, God had a wife. You know, archaeologists have found hundreds of these little statuettes depicting naked women either touching their breasts or genitals, which is kind of emphasizing the fertility aspect of it all. And there there was writing on some of them, of these uh, statuettes, and they said uh, they are invocation to Asherah. Asherah um, was God's wife, according to many Hebrew people. So all of this stuff clearly tells you that not everybody was on board with the theology. Not everybody agreed that there was only one single God. Many Hebrew people had very, very different beliefs in this regard. You know, the worship of Asherah, as well as the worship of several other gods that at various times became popular among Hebrew people, did not go well with the hardcore monotheistic Jews who wrote the scriptures that became the Hebrew Bible. To the point, I mean, it may not even be an exaggeration to suggest that the clash between monotheism and polytheism is probably the biggest overarching theme in most of the scriptures. You know, the tale goes something like this. Monotheistic Hebrew people give credit to the one God for doing amazing things for Hebrew people. The rest of the population fails to recognize it or give thanks Um, Or maybe they do give thanks, but they don't feel the need to stop worshipping other gods. So the one god gets very jealous over this and unleashes a series of catastrophes afflicting their nation. The typical metaphor in this scripture is God not as a loving father, but as a sport lover, who is upset to feel betrayed and so lashes out. And then we hear this story so many times that really after a while you get the feeling of sort of wash, rinse, repeat, wash, rinse, repeat, because it happens over and over and over again. So the main scene for which God punishes the Hebrew nation over and over again is not being bad to your neighbors or any of those kind of things. It's unfaithfulness, specifically failure to worship him alone. And it's because of these sins that Israel and later Judah would be conquered by the instruments of God's wrath, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but we'll get to that later. In any case, many centuries pass between this very likely mythological massacre following the Golden Calf debacle and the clash with the Assyrians that is at the center of this episode. Why am I telling you this stuff if I think there's a decent chance that it may be mythology and not history? Because in some way it doesn't matter if it's mythology or history. You know, it's, It becomes the foundation of the beliefs that many, many people had and would continue to have throughout history. So whether it really happened or not is kind of secondary in a way. For the sake of providing a minimum of continuity, but at the same time to get to the Assyrians sooner rather than later, Let me at least briefly sketch some of the key phases narrated in the biblical narrative. Following the exodus from Egypt and various adventures in the desert, something else happens. Again, or maybe didn't happen since we have limited evidence for this too, but under Moses' successor, Joshua, the Hebrew tribes are tasked by God with taking possession of the promised land in Canaan. But one obstacle stands in the way. 
There are plenty of other people already living in these lands, and God has apparently failed to communicate to them that this is the Hebrew tribe's promised land so that they should move over. Not to worry, though, because God has a simple solution for this problem. Kill all these people with my blessing, and the promised land shall be yours. And so dutifully Joshua gets to work to carry out a war of extermination in the name of the one God. Um, The following chapters in the scriptures are full of lines like this one found in Joshua 6.21. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Or this one found in Deuteronomy 20.16. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not live alive anything that breathes. Do not live alive anything that breathes is something that you expect in like a Conan novel with chrome. That's pretty intense. Or Deuteronomy 2.34 that say, At that time we took all of his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. So if the Bible is a true work of history, then it tells the story of a genocide carried out in the name of the only true God as the Hebrew tribes destroyed city after city in the process of taking possession of Canaan. No one knows if this holy war against Canaan was really happened or not. Some scholars argue that the Hebrew tribe actually mingled with the local population or had been there actually all along, and this whole story of an exodus is sort of, again, a myth that doesn't really, hasn't really happened. And there is a possibility that, you know, there's some grounding for this theory because some of the same people that are supposed to have been wiped out according to the text are still there centuries later, so something clearly didn't quite work out as advertised. Um, Some scholars argue that these bloodier parts of the biblical literature come from fundamentalists from the 7th century before Common Era who they were creating a myth to justify some of their ideology. In any case, the scriptures tell that after a lengthy stretch of time, the Hebrew tribes abandoned the more decentralized form of government that they followed in favor of a monarchy. And depending on which sources you choose to trust, this happened anywhere between roughly the year 1000 BC and 900 BC, give or take a few decades. I'm soon going to return to the Hebrew monarchy. But first it's time to be introduced to the other main part in our story, the Assyrians. Assyria had humble origins as a city-state in northern Mesopotamia, based around the city of Assur, about 150-160 miles north of Baghdad, so that's well over 200 kilometers, on the west bank of the Tigris River. They also had a god named Assur, like the town, and likely the name Assyrians is derived from it. Their homeland would eventually come to include northern Iraq, north, I mean, I'm speaking in, of course, modern-day political terms, like northern Iraq, northeastern Syria, and southeastern Turkey. 
So these guys would end up running a powerful state in Mesopotamia for almost 2,000 years, which is a truly insane time frame, particularly when you consider that those centuries included the Bronze Age collapse that destroyed so many other societies in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. For about three centuries, from the 900s to 600s before Common Era, the latest and perhaps most powerful incarnation of the Assyrian Empire was in full swing. And the time frame for, for our story falls precisely within this period. A guy named Adad Nirari II, uh, who ruled probably between 912 and 891 before Common Era, is considered the first king of this neo-Assyrian empire. He was the one who reformed the government and the army, making the Assyrians a, a major force in the era. A historian named uh, Mark van de Mirop writes, the king, as a representative of the god Assur, represented order. Wherever he was in control, there was peace, tranquility and justice. And where he did not rule, there was chaos. The king's duty to bring order to the entire world was the justification for military expansion. Now, of course, as a general rule, people don't create an empire by being nice guys. No one builds an empire by knocking on your door saying, Hello, I'm a kind, sweet person with good ideas to improve everyone's life and and I would love to be your emperor. Your support would be tremendously appreciated. That's not how it works. All empires are built on brutality and bloodshed. And the Assyrians had an uncommon talent for brutality and bloodshed. Hence, their successful empire. Now, the wonderful human being who is Dan Carlin dedicated one of the very early episodes of Hardcore History to the Assyrians. This goes all the way back from 2007 and it's entitled Judgment at Nineveh. Uh, the very first episode of Hardcore History to pass the one-hour mark in Lent, which is ridiculous to imagine today when Dan Carlin typically does four, five, six hours episodes. In any case, in that episode, Carlin said something chilling about the Assyrians. In trying to describe them, he said, Think of imperial Romans. Now, think of them meaner. Now, ancient Rome as a society was legendary for its brutality. A Roman father had the legal right to beat his kids to death. Roman generals could punish a poorly performing legion by picking lots out of every ten soldiers and having nine guys beat to death the tent. The Roman idea of entertainment was forcing slaves to kill each other with swords in the arena. So when Carlin says, think about those guys, but meaner, well, that really says something. This was a time when people routinely did horrific things to one another, so in an ultra-brutal cultural context, the Assyrians stood out for their brutality. Assyrian kings regularly boasted of their atrocities against their enemies. They advertised them, much in the way that the Mongols advertised their brutality. Uh, they, their goal was to let people know that it wasn't wise to rebel. Their goal was to intimidate enemies enough so that they would not dare to risk a long siege. 
because if you give up immediately they may show mercy uh, if uh, otherwise they would show no mercy because if you force them to work hard to defeat you so the palaces of Assyrian kings were decorated with reliefs detailing the torture and death of their enemies impaling, flaying and burning enemies to death were all part of the regular menu now imagine the walls of your house being decorated with images like that now that's not usually something that leads to spectacular mental health and kindness toward your fellow man because okay i understand the logic of using brutality as a strategy you know the classic uh, princess bride dread pirate concept you know where when the dread pirate roberts in princess bride say you know you cannot let people think you have gone soft otherwise then it's work 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 because they keep challenging you so you need to keep them scared too so i get that idea but what kind of effect does it have on the psyche of the people living in those environments is that something you can turn off can you be normal, pleasant, and loving in your day-to-day -day interaction with your kids and then you go flay some people alive? I mean, is it just another day at the office, you know, necessary work, but you don't really enjoy it? You know, what did you do at work today, honey? Uh, I had to flay a few people, set fire to a few others, you know, one of those days. Or by that point are you just a full-on sadist on steroids who gets off on inflicting pain and dishing out death? Just a straight-up serial killer 24-7. It's interesting to see how much the level of brutality is a button that you can turn on and off. In some ways it's really almost more disturbing to imagine perfectly normal people who are nice to their family who can do this. You know, some of the most disturbing pictures I've ever seen, there was one where I saw Hitler walking hand in hand with a little girl. In another one, you see these young German folks laughing at a picnic. And it seemed like such a wholesome, mellow image when you realize that these were some of the guards at Auschwitz. So sometimes the ordinary nature of evil is scarier than to imagine these people as monsters. But in any case, when speaking of Assyrian brutality, just don't take my word for it. Check out how the Assyrian rulers describe their activities. Uh, we can look at the king uh, Ashur Nasipal II, who ruled between 883 and 859 before Common Era, who uh, boasted about punishing a city that resisted by saying, I flayed as many nobles that had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many and clad the city walls with their skins. In another passage, I cut off their heads, I burned them with fire. With their blood I dyed the mountain red like red wool. Men I impaled on stakes. The city I destroyed, devastated. The young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Or, in another passage, 
I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and other I bound to stakes around the pillar. I fell three thousand of their fighting men with the sword. Many captives I burned with fire, and many I took as living prisoners. Of some I cut off their feet and hands, of others I cut off their ears, noses and lips. I gouged out the eyes of many others. I made one pile of the young men's ears, and another of the old men's heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. Now, wanting to make his daddy proud, Salmaneser III, the son of Ashur Nasirpal II, said, I filled the wide plain with the corpses of his warriors. These rebels I impaled on stakes. A pyramid of heads I erected in front of the city. And forgive me for quoting a little bit more, but I want to make it clear that this was not one particular king or another. This was everybody who was doing it. Another Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, he says, Their king I hung up in front of the gate of his city on a stake. His land, his wife, his sons, his daughters, his property, the treasure of his palace, I carried off. Um, Sennacherib, the guy that is going to play a big role in our story. I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their guts run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings low the weak than the evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors I filled the plain, like grass. Their testicles I cut off, and tore out their privates like the seeds of cucumbers. Yeah. So, I could go on, but I think you get the vibe. It's undeniable, though, that while the Assyrians were clearly not ideal candidates for the Nobel Peace Prize, they were extremely effective at what they did. And what they did was to build an efficient military machine set to conquer a good chunk of the Middle East. Assyrian rulers who typically approach neighboring countries, making them the classic offer you can refuse. Their offer was simple. Become incorporated into our imperial economic system, and you get to grow old uh, running your own client state. You pay us tribute, but you get to live. And if intimidated by the Assyrian well-earned reputation, their marks accepted the offer, well, clearly this would benefit the Assyrians, since it allowed them to avoid a bloody and expensive war. But of course the Assyrians were quick to remind them that it would benefit other people even more, since it allowed them to avoid ending up as the subjects for the torture porn art that Assyrian rulers like to use as decoration. So basically what the Assyrians did was they ran a protection racket. You know, the threat of violence always looming large. If people took the deal, but then stopped paying tribute, they were considered rebels and were made an example of. 
So after killing a whole bunch of the rebels in war, the Assyrians would typically deport the captured nobility that survived, and sometimes they would deport the rest of the population too, before they would import foreigners to resettle the depopulated province. So most of the surrounding states eventually folded. Uh, one of the few to somewhat successfully resist the Assyrians was the powerful kingdom of Egypt. And part of what made the Assyrians very skilled at warfare wasn't just their apparent passion for bloodshed, but was an extremely well-organized intelligence network, allowing their generals to know their enemies' every move in almost real time. Something else notable about the Assyrian war machine was their skill at siege warfare. You know, they were pros with towers, battering rams, and all the techniques designed to make a siege su successful. And when I say they were pros, I mean it literally. And because unlike most armies in the ancient world, they were mostly made up of a citizen's militia raised for a particular campaign, the Assyrians had a well-trained, disciplined, standing army. So this professionalization of warfare clearly separated them from other non-professional armies. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about the breakdown of the Assyrian army. You know, different historians have their pet theories regarding the exact composition of the army, how much it relied on infantry, which was made up primarily of spearmen, archers, and slingers throwing rocks, how much they relied on cavalry, mostly armed with spears and bows, or perhaps they relied on chariots. But beyond, beyond this, the actual evidence is kind of thin. Um, one thing we do know is that the archers played a big role in the military operations. It's debated whether this applies to the Assyrians or not, but there are fascinating videos on YouTube by a modern archer named uh, Lars Anderson who demonstrates an extremely high-velocity archery style that may have been part of ancient warfare. The sheer number of arrows needed for a campaign is almost hard to imagine, and the ability to provide enough arrows for the army during a long campaign was actually an important factor determining whether the campaign would succeed or not. Now that we have made at least a superficial acquaintance with the Assyrians, it's time to go back and check in with the Hebrew monarchy. According to the Bible, there was a united Hebrew kingdom under King Saul, then David and Solomon, but after this the kingdom split into two separate entities, the northern kingdom of Israel, home to ten of the twelve tri Hebrew tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, home to the remaining two tribes. Historians tend to wildly disagree on this. Um, some support the notion of a united kingdom that fractured in two. Others argue for the existence of two separate kingdoms from the get-go. And these guys usually believe that David and Solomon were more... I mean, actually, all of the kings were more likely than not mythical figures. Evidence on this early stuff is extremely thin, as usual, and getting lost in the debates on these would take us far away from the point of our story. So for our purposes, regardless of whether there was a unified monarchy or not, what we know 
is that by somewhere around the 900s before Common Era, two Hebrew states emerged. Israel being the more powerful and Judah being more or less a vassal of its stronger neighbor. By the way, when I say two Hebrew kingdoms, I should probably qualify that. Evidence seems to point out that the northern kingdom was ethnically quite diverse. It was part Hebrew, part Canaanite, part, you know, bunch of populations in the area were absorbed within it. Even the most powerful of the Israelite monarchs, Omri, the, I guess if you want to use Game of Thrones terminology, the king in the north, who founded an important dynasty, may have not even been Hebrew at all. You know, Omri's origins are rather mysterious. Uniquely, the Bible fails to record his father's name or his tribe, and his name suggests he may have been uh, possibly a Phoenician. Either way, Omri and his successors built a very effective state, created a strong army, stabilized the country, and they were able to extend their territory into the Jordan Valley. On top of that, they built a new strategically located capital city at Samaria. They built a palace there that was larger than any structure in the entire Levant until Herod the Great rebuilt the temple in Roman times. This, but this happened some 800 years later. They also forged alliances via marriage with Phoenician towns on the Mediterranean. So these guys were... To say a big deal is to put it very mildly. You know, Israel kingdom under Omri and his successors was the pinnacle of Israel's success. Uh, for centuries thereafter, the Assyrians would refer to Israel as the House of Omri. Oddly enough, though, scriptures don't give a whole lot of credit to Omri and his descendants. And when they do talk about them, they mostly do it to cast a negative light on them. The reason for this is simple. It goes back to our old story of monotheism versus polytheism and how that clash played out in Hebrew history. It's pretty much undisputed, in fact, that the Israelite kings in Omri's dynasty were not strict monotheists. They ruled over a multi-ethnic kingdom with tremendous religious variety within it, and they allow for the worship of multiple divinities. These are obviously major strikes in the eyes of those who wrote down the Hebrew scriptures. Couple these with the fact that the writers of those books held it as an article of faith that the one true God granted success only to rulers who properly worshipped him. And clearly we have a problem, since the historical reality of the success of Omni's dynasty doesn't quite match with this agenda. So the main references to the House of Omri focus on its sinfulness because of their religious policies. You know, the scriptures will tell us the story, for example, of uh, the prophet Elijah against the prophets of Baal, who was one of the um, one of the rival deities that were worship that were worship in the Middle East. Uh, incidentally, the prophets of Baal were supported by the crown. And so the prophet Elijah was more of the monotheistic band. At one point set up a contest with them. It's actually a bold 
disturbing, weird, and kind of funny episode that take place in the scriptures, because what you have is essentially, you know, again, this theme of monotheism versus polytheism takes center stage, with Elijah challenging the priests of Baal to, to attest, to see basically it's a whose god is the strongest kind of thing. And the challenge goes like this. They are going to sacrifice a bull, and then they each are going to pray to their respective gods to see who can set the bull on fire without an actual fire being applied there. And so the story goes that the, the priests of Baal, they do rituals and they do this and that and the other and nothing happens, you know, no fire, no sparks, no nothing take place. And, and Elijah start making fun of them and say, call louder, you know, he's a god, maybe he's preoccupied, he's busy in some other way or he has gone on a journey, maybe he's asleep and he'll, he'll wake up. And so he's kind of poking at them because nothing is happening despite all their prayers and supposedly then he, instead, when he does pray, miraculously, the sacrificial offering catches on fire, proving that his god was the true one, whereas Baal was not. Story, of course, doesn't end there, because if it just ended with, oh, look at that, you were right, it would be too simple. Of course, it ends in some nice bloody massacre. So you got the prophet Elijah then ordering his supporters to slaughter some 450 of the priests of Baal. And while we are at it, this is followed by a bloody coup by loyal monotheistic folks, massacring the royal family and then having the queen regent Jezebel thrown out of a window to be eaten by dogs. Just in case that following Rodney King's lead, you're wondering if maybe monotheistic Hebrews and polytheistic Hebrews could just all get along, despite the religious differences? Well, these passages answer that question with a resounding no. That's not going to happen. In any case, just around the time when Omri was establishing his dynasty in the 800s, Assyria was also on the rise. Under the leadership of uh, Ashur. I'm going to try this twice. Let's see. Ashur Nasir Pal. Yes, I got it. Ashur Nasir Pal II and his successors. The Assyrians continued their expansion at this time, and they built what some scholars consider a true empire that quickly extended its dominion on the many small states throughout the area. So it was really just a matter of time until the Hebrew states would run into the expanding Assyrian Empire. An early notable instance took place in the year 853 before Common Era, when an alliance of multiple nations, including Israel, faced off against the Assyrians at the Battle of Karkar. The Assyrians left behind inscriptions claiming a glorious victory, but mm, probably not. All available evidence point to them creatively rearranging the truth here. After all, all the kings in the alliance got to keep their thrones and did not pay tribute. So this tells us the battle was more likely than not a draw, since neither side seems to have uh, expanded their territorial domains. Over the next century, Israel and Judah had kind of a breather, you know, and saved for a few exceptions, they managed to stay clear of Assyrian conquest. The Assyrians, in fact, had 
plenty of other stuff to worry about. They had to specifically to worry about some of their neighboring kingdoms that were challenging them and didn't really have the time to worry about the Hebrews. The big power players at this time were primarily Assyria and Egypt. And everyone else mostly prayed that these giants would not set their eyes on their lands. But occasionally they would establish alliances with one of the big two in order to receive help against one of their smaller competitors. For example, one important state playing a role in the story, the regional power of Aram Damascus, it was a state that lay between Assyria and Israel. And when Assyria was occupied elsewhere to the north or the east, as it often was for decades, Aram Damascus would start hammering Israel frequently reducing its power base to just the city of Samaria itself. So you can sort of see why Israel would want to befriend Assyria. And of course, asking, well, there's a problem there, because on one hand, you know, if you are Israel, you have Aram Damascus harassing you on a regular basis, and since they have a strong army, more often than not kicking your butt. So it may not sound like such a bad idea to ask for Assyrian help, but needless to say, asking for Assyrian help came at a price. It's kind of like asking for a mafia boss to help you. You will get the help, but now you're going to be in debt with the mafia boss, which is a scary proposition in itself. So those in Israel and Judah wanted to accommodate Assyrian policies. They did so more or less understanding that they would face some burdens, but at least they would get to keep their countries. You know, and they understood the horrendous consequence that they would fall a rebellion. And they knew that by aligning with Assyria, they could, uh, they could use them as muscle against Aram Damascus. It was a gamble, of course, but one that they felt was necessary. There were others, on the other hand, who were more hopeful and they were hoping that they could... Uh, they could remain independent, beat Aram Damascus on their own, and perhaps even create a coalition against Assyria with some of other small states, usually with the belief that Egypt would come to the rescue with a large army. Usually didn't work. More often than not, the Egyptians decided they had their own stuff to worry about, and even when they did worry about it and lend some help, they weren't exactly in a position to crush the Assyrians. You know, at best, they would fight them to a draw. So in any case, for the latter part of the 800s and good part of the 700s, Hebrew rulers in Judah and Israel were mostly busy fighting neighboring states. And when there were no wars against neighbors, they kept busy trying to assassinate each other and deal with varying degrees of success with coups against the usurpers. And around this time, the Assyrians were dealing with their own problems. You know, they were losing some control internally. There were rebellions. There were different claimants to the throne. They were, you know, their, their authority was undergoing a period of weakness. But everything changed back when, uh, when in Assyria, a man by the name of Tiglat... Oh, this is a hard one, so we're going to chop down his name because his name is Tiglat Pileser III. So I'm going to give him a Star Wars name, or a Star Wars sounding name. So he's going to be TP3 for all intents and purposes, because Tiglat Pileser III is challenging my already painful pronunciation. So when 
when he absorbed the throne and he would then rule for a good chunk of time between 745 and 727 he changed dramatically the politics in the area because he was the guy that would be responsible for turning the Assyrian military into a fully-fledged professional standing army. And this did not bode well for anyone else in the general area. In the process of crushing anyone in the vicinity of Assyria, TP3 inevitably ended up knocking on Israel's door in the around the 740s, give or take a few years. The knock on the door came with the usual offer, you can't refuse, and the Assyrian offer went something like this. Um, you can either tax your subjects to pay for our protection, and in that case you get to keep your life and your crown, or do you really want me to finish that sentence? And given the choice between being impaled on the pointy end of a long sharp stick or paying tribute, the Israelite king wisely chose the latter. This arrangement continued for a few years until Israel had a new king whose bravery spoke louder than his instinct for self-preservation. This particular fellow decided to form an alliance with the king of Aram Damascus against the Assyrians. The way they saw it, an alliance had stopped the Assyrians at Karkar a century earlier, so why couldn't it work now? Being neighborly, um, they invited, and by they I mean the king of Israel and the king of Aram Damascus, they invited Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, to join the party. Judah being, again, just to remind you, the other Hebrew state. They figured the kingdom of Judah had more or less always followed Israel's lead, so of course they would be happy to oblige. Biblical authors are not big fans of Ahaz. In both Second Kings and Chronicles, they accuse him of not doing, I quote, what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, basically being an unrepentant, polytheistic worshipper. And, uh, and they also they use a really interesting phraseology. They, they accuse him of consigning his son to the fire which some people have uncharitably interpreted as some form of child sacrifice to the evil gods fond of baby killings, while others believe he refers to a less lethal kind of initiation ceremony. In any case, back to the issue at hand. Ahaz was puzzled. He's like, you want me to join forces with you to fight against the Assyrians? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Assyrians, the guys who have a professional army that has been destroying anyone who opposes them. Those guys? Yep, that's them. The ones who deal with kings who oppose them by impaling them or flailing them alive? Yep, exactly, you got it. So you ready to fight them with us or what? Ahaz concluded what any reasonable person would have concluded, which is these guys are batshit crazy and they have a death wish. But I don't, so no, I'm not joining you. Now, the prophet Isaiah agreed with him regarding not joining an alliance with foreigners. Since he believed that God was using the Assyrians as a tool to punish Israel, so the God-fearing people of Judah should not interfere. But he also advised him that the solution was to trust that God would protect them. 
Which sounds fine and all, except for the fact that the kings of Israel and Aram Damascus were big believers in the if you are not with us, you are against us philosophy. And so they did not appreciate being torn down and declare war against Judah in an attempt to secure their flanks. Despite Isaiah's rosy predictions that God would protect them, when troops from Israel and Aram Damascus invaded Judah, God seemed to be otherwise engaged. Chronicles record that uh, the Israelites and the uh, army for Aram and Damascus killed over 120,000 Judeans in a single day and taking another 120,000 captives. Now, of course, these numbers are a joke, and unfortunately, ridiculous numbers are extremely normal in military accounts from, uh, well, even today, let alone when you go back in time. Almost unfeelingly, these numbers are horrendously inflated. You know, there is no way they could have done something of this magnitude. But in any case, in the face of this, the prophet Isaiah continued to tell, again, in the face of this, and by this I mean probably those are not the numbers of people who are killed or captured, but this means nonetheless they were losing. Take it to mean that. And so Isaiah kept saying, kept telling King Ahaz, don't worry, God is going to make it all work out. But clearly, when you're the king and you see invading armies slaughtering your people left and right, it's really not that crazy to start worrying a little. So Ahaz figured, yes, Isaiah, trust in God, sure. But if you don't mind, I'll also trust in the Assyrian military muscle. And it turns out Isaiah did mind, a lot. But he wasn't the king, so there wasn't a whole lot he could do about that. So King Ahaz went ahead and called Arolbad the TP3, the warrior king of Assyria. And just to make sure that TP3 took him seriously, Ahaz sent along with his request a whole bunch of gold and silver store that had been stored in the temple. Ahaz obviously was not enthusiastic about becoming a puppet king under the Assyrian yoke. And he was even less enthusiastic about parting with his gold and silver. But this was a better alternative than losing his kingdom and his head to the combined forces of Israel and Aram Damascus. According to Assyrian records, the year was 733 before Common Era. The Assyrians were only too happy to go after Israel and Aram Damascus on behalf of Judah, since Judah had just become the new member of their protection racket. So war began with one of the Hebrew states, Judah, fighting alongside Assyria against Israel, the other Hebrew state. The Assyrians wasted no time destroying Damascus, capturing its king and executing him. Israel suffered a similar fate, losing a good chunk of its territory to Assyria. And then, as a result of this, the Assyrians also deported thousands of Hebrew citizens from Israel, thereby writing an early chapter in the book of the Jewish diaspora. And while he was at it, good old TP3 played kingmaker by supporting a new Israelite puppet king. Um, despite the fact that King Ahaz of Judah had managed to save his kingdom, 
he still got no love from the biblical authors who harshly criticized him for his apparent fondness of Assyrian gods and their religious practices. Meanwhile, his new Israelite king, a guy by the name of Hosea, who um, remained a faithful tribute-paying subject of Assyria, knowing all too well that TP3, the Assyrian king, was his true boss. But in 727 before Common Era, um, TP3 died, and his son, Shalmaneser V, succeeded him. At this point, Hosea was looking for a way to squeeze out from under the Assyrian thumb, and saw his chance in a promised alliance with the powerful state of Egypt, plus some Phoenician towns who would together create yet another anti-Assyrian coalition. Unfortunately for Hosea, Egypt at this time talked a much bigger game than it could deliver, and the alliance proved to be not particularly effective. Unfortunately for us, Assyrian records at this critical juncture in history are barely existent. But we know enough to understand they did not take Hosea's rebellion well. You know, I can sort of picture uh, an exasperated Shalmaneser V at the start of his kingdom thinking, all you had to do was pay up, and you could have spent the rest of your days enjoying your harem and drinking to your heart content or whatever the hell you want. But no, someone had to show he was a big boy and got in league with Egypt and not paying what he's owed. Sometimes I think some of these kings like getting impaled. I mean, why? Wouldn't it have been wouldn't have been so much easier on everyone else if you just kept paying? Instead now I have to mobilize my army and come crush you and work, 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 work. The exact chronology of events gets really murky at this point. You know, at bare minimum, we know that the Assyrian army invaded the northern Hebrew kingdom and laid siege to its capital. So yet another round of warfare in a war-torn country. There's so much history of war and bloodshed around this area, by the way, that the mountain Megiddo, in, uh, which in Hebrew is Ar Megiddo, is was later anglicized in Armageddon, would become the, the very symbol for the prophesied site of the final battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil in Christian theology. In any case, at this particular juncture, uh, it was the Assyrians invading to punish the rebellious Israelites. There's a, I'm just going to quote from Second uh, Kings chapter 17, where it says, but the king of Assyria caught Hosea in an act of treachery. He had sent envoys to King Saul of Egypt, and he had not paid the tribute to the king of Assyria as in previous years. And the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria marched against the whole land. He came to Samaria and besieged it for three years. While it's undisputed that the campaign began under the rule of Shalmaneser V, it seems like he may have ended under the next Assyrian king, Sargon II, who more than likely had absorbed Shalmaneser's throne, probably killing him. Sargon made sure that much of the documentation from his predecessor's rule would disappear, so it's not entirely clear if Sargon was Shalmaneser's half-brother or if he was just some random usurper. 
not that this mattered at all for the Israelites, since regardless of who exactly was the king at this point, around 721, give or take a few months, they were conquered by Assyrian troops. And this was one rebellion too many for Israel. So the Assyrians deported much of the Hebrew population, reorganized the Ares in Assyrian province under an Assyrian governor, and resettled the area by bringing a whole bunch of people from various parts of their empire. So for all intents and purposes, this was the end of the Northern Kingdom, the end of the Ten Tribes of Israel. They had messed with their own people, and now they were no more. You know, of course, when I say they were no more, a whole bunch of them would survive as individuals, but spread all over the Assyrian Empire, they would lose their ethnic and religious identity and ended up being mixed among the peoples of Assyria. Not everyone was deported, though. You know, while the elite certainly were, many of Israel's peasants were allowed to remain behind to work the land, and they probably mixed with the people imported into the area by the Assyrians. So either way, the remnants were not seen any longer as true Hebrews by the biblical authors who were, anyway, disgusted with their polytheistic practices. They even tell that upset at the inability on the part of the new population of the area to properly worship God, uh, God sent lions to eat them. And the story gets even weirder from there. Uh, I mean, I was tempted to say funny, but you know, probably wasn't funny for those who were eaten by lions, but maybe for everybody else. What happens is biblical authors start telling us that the Assyrian king ordered that a Hebrew priest among those who have been deported should be sent back to teach the folks there how to properly worship the local god so that he would stop sending lions. And these incidents kind of more or less clearly show how at the time many people believed that gods were rooted in a certain land. They, were, they weren't universal gods for all places, they were the god of that particular spot. In any case, I can't emphasize enough how dramatic the destruction of the Kingdom of Israel was. The entire Hebrew population was made of 12 tribes, but after this event only two were left. In other words, the future of what would become Judaism and the Jewish people was hanging by a really thin thread. The Book of Kings explains that this calamity the way biblical authors explain pretty much everything else, which is it's because the Israelites worship other gods and did not pay proper attention to the one true God. So in Second Kings 17, there's um, a passage that, it's a rather long quote, but let me read that to you. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worship other gods and follow the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city they build themselves high places in all their towns, they set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. 
they did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worship idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I deliver to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. So you get the vibe. Um, biblical authors essentially saying it was God all along. He sent the Assyrians because... In Israel, they were not properly worshipping, and this is what caused the collapse of the kingdom. Before going forward, I should clarify something in case I haven't done so already. Everything I'm telling you is dependent on sources that are less than ideal. This, unfortunately, is inevitable when talking about some 2,700 years old history. About a time when people wrote on clay, if you are lucky, and papyrus that doesn't hold through the ages if we aren't. And to make matters worse, there are all types of lies, half-truths, lies by omissions that we have to sort through. So scholars who spend their lifetime doing this stuff uh, will write long essays with making convincing arguments concerning what happened, and especially when and in what order certain things happen, against other scholars who will make seemingly equally convincing arguments against that. So the point being, even experts are not 100% sure of how this all played out. It's fascinating, for sure, but also frustrating when trying to create a very clear narrative. With this reminder out of the way, let's get back to business. One of the immediate practical consequences of the collapse of the Kingdom of Israel was that vast numbers of Hebrew people who had not been killed or deported, poured into Judah as refugees. Judah was the last surviving Hebrew state. Up until this point, it had been a small, fairly backward place. They weren't exactly known for their literary productions or for much else. But suddenly they were flooded with plenty of other Hebrews who brought with them a more complex culture. Among them were likely some of the writers and priests who were extremely passionate about the idea of monotheism. Judah at this time was still technically independent, but under obligation to pay off the Assyrians for the privilege of remaining such. So, you know, independent to a point. Uh, they had their king, but he was a king who had to pay tribute to Assyria. Sargon was busy with the eastern and northern areas of the empire, fighting against a whole bunch of people who still held on to the very naive notion that they could say no to the Assyrians. So he wasn't paying Judah much attention anyway. As long as their tributes would keep getting paid on time, he had no reason to bother them. Once in a while, though, he would show up in the neighborhood to remind everyone who was boss. 
you know, give or take a few years around 716, for example, he campaigned in the area north of Judah against some nomadic Arabic tribes that threatened his trade routes by attacking caravans, and, and he also campaigned against some Philistines living on the Mediterranean coast. And these Philistines apparently had chosen suicide by Assyrians. You know, you may have heard the expression suicide by cops when somebody will grab a weapon and go after policemen, basically wanting to be shot by cops. It's a rather bizarre form of suicide. But uh, a similar process around that time was suicide by Assyrians. You know, if you were tired of leaving, all you had to do was rebel, and the Assyrians would show up ready to relieve you of your earthly concerns. This time, some of the rebels asked for Egyptian help, but the Assyrian army spanked them too, and before before visiting the rebels who had made such an unwise move. And, you know, so first they beat up the Egyptian, and then they go to the guys who had asked for Egyptian help, saying, what did you do? And, of course, they crushed them, and to make a point, they grabbed their king and burned him alive. Sometime around 715, the king of Judah, Hahaz, died, and his son, Hezekiah, took over. Biblical authors love, love, love Hezekiah for his belligerent monotheism that he wanted to impose on his less-than-enthusiastic subjects. As mentioned, polytheism was still running strong among vast numbers of Hebrew people back then, so the jury was still out to decide which side would come up on top. Oozing with pride, the authors of scriptures told how Hezekiah went with a vengeance against the worship of the goddess Asherah, destroyed the places where people worship both the one god plus a few more in the countryside, and essentially gave a monopoly over religion to the priests who were running the temple in Jerusalem, which became the one place where you were allowed to worship. Both in terms of power and money, this did wonders for the temple priests, who in return were very grateful to Hezekiah. In Second uh, Chronicles 36, it says, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites, who are unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked, as your ancestors were, Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. In the meantime... Hezekiah continued paying his tribute to Assyria, so he was free to persecute anyone who didn't follow monotheism to his heart's content without any Assyrian interference. Around 712, Sargon showed up again with his army to punish yet another rebellious Philistine city determined to commit suicide by Assyrians. 
the usual playbook was followed, with the Assyrians arriving, killing a whole bunch of rebels, deporting more people before importing others, and turning the area into another Assyrian province. Sargon, however, was not long for this world. In 705 before Common Era, he discovered the uncomfortable truth that even the most successful warriors lose sometimes. Sargon had loved war with a passion, unique even for an Assyrian king. He was perfectly happy letting his son Sennacherib handle the administration of much of the empire, just so that he could be free to do what he liked best, which was traveling to exotic lands and killing people who didn't immediately cry uncle when they saw him. You know how motivational speakers tell you you should discover your passion and make that your career? Sargon had definitely done that. His passion involved leading armies and murdering the hell out of enemies. And he had built a very successful career around that natural predisposition. Sargon was notorious for taking risks by diving into the thick of the fighting himself, sometimes ahead of his troops. But in 705, he pushed his luck once too many, and ended up killed in battle, with his troops unable to retrieve his body. It's debated who exactly killed him, whether he was uh, rebels from Tabal or nomadic Cimmerians. Now, Cimmerians sound good to me, since I can picture Conan the Barbarian himself going after the king, but either way, even though we don't know the details, the point remains that you never year of Assyrian kings dying in battle, so this was a very, very, very bad moment. His son, Sennacherib, who I mentioned a minute ago, had already been running the administrative side of the empire. He had built a reputation as an engineering wizard and a builder. He oversaw the creation of a city that his father had wanted to see built for his capital. But now that his father was dead, all the responsibility fell on his shoulders. You know, Sargon's death convinced many that the new capital was cursed, so it was abandoned. And Sennacherib moved the capital to Nineveh. With his usual skills, he quickly turned the old town into Nineveh 2.0, a magnificent city admired by all. Now, you may have heard about the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which were considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The traditional story is that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II had created the hanging gardens as a gift to his wife, who apparently missed the greenery and beauty of her native lands in the northwestern part of modern-day Iran. But the ancient sources that placed the hanging gardens in Babylon were written long after the facts by people who had not been there. Well, okay, that doesn't necessarily mean they were wrong, but in this case it kind of does, because extensive archaeological searches have found no traces of these magnificent gardens in Babylon. No major irrigation work or anything of the sort that would suggest the presence of these massive gardens. However, there's plenty of evidence for these giant gardens in Nineveh, which was a location much more suited for great gardens than Babylon anyway. Author Stephanie Daly suggests that the confusion may have taken place because Assyria conquered Babylon, 
and ancient sources may have conflated the two. So there's a more than decent chance that the hanging gardens of legend may have been those built by Sennacherib in Nineveh. In any case, it's almost certain that there was some kind of succession crisis following Sargon's death. It's something that happened fairly regularly when a king died, particularly if he died in sudden and dramatic circumstances like Sargon had done. Sources are completely silent regarding this period, and there was not even an official king for a year, so there must have certainly been some kind of major drama. You know, in some way, the new guy, in this case Sennacherib, had to prove himself. So, a good educated guess is that Sennacherib was probably busy killing everyone trying to whack him and take power away from him. But ultimately, we don't know for sure. We do know that pretty much any time a king died, anyone who had even a remote inkling toward rebelling chose the chaotic time of transition before a new king could fully get a handle of the job to act on it. They were still flirting with suicide by Assyrian, but at least their odds would be slightly better than usual, so maybe it wasn't a guaranteed suicide after all. So not surprisingly, Sennacherib had to deal with rebellions from just from the get-go. You know, one of the thorns in his side was a guy named Merodok Baladan. He has lots of names, by the way, and they are all as complicated as this one, so we'll stick to this version for simplicity. This guy had rebelled in the past when Sargon was king and even managed to conquer the crown of Babylon. He was never able to defeat the Assyrians, but unlike most defeated kings, he had always managed to escape and save his skin. There's an inscription from Sargon talking about his earlier revolt that said, Merodach Baladan, son of Iakin, king of Chaldea, seed of a murderer, prop of a weak devil, who did not fear the name of the Lord of Lords, put his trust into the bitter sea, with its tossing waves, violated the oath of the great gods and withheld his gifts. Which is a really long-winded way of saying he didn't pay up his tribute. So Sargon then describes how he went after Morodak Baladan, who fled like a coward, and Babylonians, on the other hand, remembered their king more fondly. He was a native to the country, and he had been a good ruler, fixing the infrastructure and keeping a healthy economy. So now that Sargon was dead, Baladan figured it was a good time to emerge from his hiding and try again. He built alliances with a bunch of other groups and reclaimed the throne. He knew his best chance to succeed was to organize a general rebellion of multiple peoples. And so that's what he did. Um, because apparently diplomacy and charming people into following his plans was something he was really good at. In scriptures, in Isaiah 38, it tells the story of that some scholars believe refers to the origin of the alliance between Hezekiah and Baladan. There's some dispute about the timing, but to me, this moment when Baladan was trying to build the anti-Syrian alliance seems the most likely. Um, in any case, what Isaiah 38 tells is that Hezekiah at one point got very sick, and Isaiah brought him the cheerful news, Thus says the Lord, 
Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Hezekiah didn't take it well, started crying and begging for more time and praying. And so Isaiah came back saying, okay, okay, hold it. God spoke to me again and he said, fine, 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 I'll give you 15 more years. So at this time, Morodak Baladan sent ambassadors congratulating Hezekiah on his recovery. And in a seemingly really stupid move, Hezekiah showed to them all of his wealth and treasure, which some people suggest there may be a connection between these and the Babylonians deciding to invade over a hundred years later, since the fame of the treasure, no doubt, had made the rounds. So this seemed absolutely dumb on Hezekiah's part, but it's very likely that he w- that wasn't stupid after all. You know, it's very possible that the ambassadors had invited him to join the rebellion, and Hezekiah showed them the treasure, armory, and storerooms to let them know that he had what it took to be a good partner, and was ready for war against the Assyrians. This, of course, is a bit speculative, but what is not speculative is that Hezekiah made the radical choice to stop paying tribute and join an alliance that included the Egyptians, Phoenicians, Babylonians, and Philistines against the Assyrians. Baladan must have made a hell of a convincing argument to sway Hezekiah, reassuring him that this move was not just another case of suicide by Assyrians. So knowing that it wouldn't be long until the Assyrians took notice and reacted, Hezekiah made preparations for war. Uh, there's archaeological evidence for some of these preparations at Lachish and some other towns, you know, where you find storage jars full of foodstuff and other supplies in, in preparation for a siege. Uh, oddly enough, these jars also have the seal of Hezekiah on them, and these are not very monotheistic in nature, since they include Egyptian symbols, possibly representing a sun god. <clears throat> but in any case, Hezekiah also had a tunnel dug through some almost 2,000 feet of solid rock in order to bring water into Jerusalem in anticipation of a possible siege. In the meantime, Sennacherib started by going after Morodak Baladan first. And it wasn't long before the Babylonian arm of the alliance collapsed under the assault of the Assyrian army. Baladan was clearly better at selling his plan than winning on the field of battle, so fairly quickly he saw his country overrun by Assyrian soldiers. And eventually Babylon itself fell. Now normally, when it came to Babylon, the Assyrians played a bit light, at least by their standards, because they admired Babylon's cultural importance. Babylon was considered a holy city, it had religious importance, but it wouldn't help them this time. Sennacherib had had enough of Babylonian rebellions, so here is his description of what happened. I swiftly marched to Babylon, which I was intent upon conquering. I blew like the onrush of a hurricane and enveloped the city like a fog. I completely surrounded it and captured it by breaching and scaling the walls. I did not spare his mighty warriors, young or old, but filled the city square with their corpses. I turned over to my men to keep the property of that city, silver, gold, gems, all the movable goods. My men took hold of the statue of the gods in the city and smashed them. 
they took possession of the property of the gods. The statues of Adad and Shala, god of the city of Ekalati, that Marduk Nadinahe, king of Babylonia, had taken to Babylon at the time of Tiglat Pileser I, king of Assyria. I brought out of Babylon after 418 years. I returned them to the city of Ekalati. The city and houses I completely destroyed from foundations to roof and set fire to them. I tore down both inner and outer city walls, temples, temple towers made of brick and clay, as many as there were, and threw everything into the Harachtu Canal. I dug a ditch inside the city and thereby leveled off the earth on its side with water. I destroyed even the outline of its foundations. I flattened it more than any flood could have done. In order that the site of that city and its temples would never be remembered, I devastated it with water so that it became a mere meadow. Now, Sennacherib's claim that he had destroyed Babylon completely was probably an exaggeration. Um, but the important thing about this is that Babylon was considered a holy city. So this act was something like destroying the Vatican or Mecca or Jerusalem today. And while Sennacherib's success was impressive, his nemesis Morodak Baladan managed to escape yet again. But with Babylon crashed under his heel, Sennacherib now moved on for a campaign in Phoenicia against the rebellious king Luli. Another victory later and another defeated king running for his life later, Sennacherib began destroying Philistine cities. Some drama had apparently taken place in the Philistine city of Akron. Probably the city became a vassal of Judah at the time, and their king Padi, who was a good Assyrian vassal, was kicked out of power by the anti-Assyrian faction in the city, and he was taken in chains to Jerusalem. This, again we turn to Sennacherib, uh, this is what Sennacherib says. The officials, nobles, and people of Akron, who had thrown Paddy their king, bound by treaty to Assyria, into fetters of iron, and had given him over to Hezekiah, he kept him in confinement like an enemy. This clearly did no good to in the inhabitants of Akron, since, as Sennacherib would continue writing, I drew near to Akron and slew the governors and nobles who had committed sin, and hung their bodies on stakes around the city. The citizens who had sinned and treated Assyria lightly, I counted as spoil. The rest of them were not guilty of sin and contempt. I pardoned. Before the end of his campaign, Sennacherib managed to use threats to get Hezekiah to release Paddy, so that he could be restored in his place as a king loyal to Sennacherib. Again, this is how Sennacherib tells the story. Say, Paddy, their king, I brought out of Jerusalem. I set him on the royal throne over them and imposed upon him my kingly tribute. So after all this was accomplished, the time had arrived for Sennacherib and his army to pay Hezekiah a visit. As Sennacherib left his palace for his campaign in Judah, I sort of picture Billy Crystal and Carol Kane waving at him and his army saying, a fun storm in the castle. Now, perhaps that's not 100% historically accurate, but that's how I like to imagine it. And yes, in case you have never seen The Princess Bride, this is your 
public service announcement reminding you there's still time to repent of your sins and watch it. Once the Assyrians began the invasion of Judah, it became clear that angering them had not been a great idea. It isn't all that clear whether Hezekiah had seriously overestimated his own strength or if he had trusted in allies, probably Egyptian and Babylonians, who, had, who failed to deliver. But either way, it was now obvious to everyone that rebellion had been a serious miscalculation, and Hezekiah's gesture of rebellion was looking more and more like a suicidal move by a delusional religious fanatic. Hebrew armies were no match for the Assyrian military machine. For most of their manpower, Judah depended on militia raised for the occasion. But unfortunately, facing them were professional soldiers whose one and only career was warfare. So the result was inevitable. The Assyrian king Sennacherib himself led his troops to unleash pain and misery on the citizens of Judah. It wasn't personal. You know, individually, the citizens of Judah had nothing to deserve what befell them, except for being born in a state ruled by a guy who thought he could defy Assyrian power. And this clearly wouldn't do. So Sennacherib had to send a message loud and clear to anyone else thinking about not paying their protection money. And so in 701, he paved the path of destruction across Phoenicia and the Philistine towns that had also rebelled before invading Judah, wiping out smaller hamlets, taking 46 cities and impaling a whole bunch of people who stood in his way. By the time his army reached Lachish, they had already burned, pillaged and murdered up and down Judah. Lachish was the second biggest city in Judah after Jerusalem. It had massive walls and a sizable population. So this was going to be no simple show up, storm the place and be home for dinner kind of thing. Taking a city as powerful as Lachish required serious effort and a proper siege. Not exactly a problem for Sennacherib since his military was specialized in siege warfare. And Sennacherib made it a point to be there in person and personally supervise the siege. Sieges tend to be complicated endeavors. They require an excellent supply chain to keep the army well fed, and some engineering magic allowing soldiers to take down the wall while being protected from whatever the defenders on the wall throw down at them. The Assyrians had all of this down to a science. They built sophisticated siege towers and had one of the best supply chains in that part of the world. Typically, one could approach a siege in one of two ways. Surround the town and waiting for them to give up when they run out of food, or forcing the issue by taking down the walls or climbing on top of them. More often than not, people would do both. They would weaken a town for a while and then pursue a more aggressive course of action, since waiting for starvation to kick in may take longer than once a supply line, the one's own supplies can last, or at least longer than one is willing to invest time-wise. When the more aggressive approach begins, usually an archery battle plays a role in it, since defenders will shoot arrows and drop rocks on the enemy, 
while those storming the city will use archers to pick defenders off the wall, making it easier for their comrades to ram the gates. In this particular case, the Assyrians quickly got to work building ramps made of mounded dirt with wood on top in order to bring siege engines to get as close to the walls as possible. By the way, I'm told the earth, dirt and rocks from the ramp built over 2700 years ago during the siege are still there. In any case, once the siege engines got moving, they no doubt had to endure a storm of arrows and projectiles directed their way. And when they got closer to their destination, some Assyrian soldiers had to improvise themselves firemen and neutralize the defenders' efforts to set the movable siege towers on fire. From his seat on a nearby hill, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and as he liked to say with a bit of hyperbole, king of the world, enjoyed the view of his troops' mastery at this aspect of warfare. If you had to be anyone present at this siege, being Sennacherib was your best bet. You know, all the defenders were gripped with terror at the prospect of what would happen if slash when the walls were breached, and the Assyrian soldiers had to sweat to make sure not to end up shot, crushed, or set on fire. Sennacherib, on the other hand, sat on his comfy chair with servants fanning him and food and drink at his disposal. All he had to do was wait a little, and wealth and slaves from Lachish would be his. He definitely would have agreed with Mel Brooks that it's good to be the king. Once the Assyrian army finally broke through and took the city, they were definitely not in a merciful mood. There's a lot of Assyrian art depicting what happened at Lachish once the city fell into their hands. Sennacherib would go on to decorate a room in his palace with scenes from this battle. POWs were rounded up and deported. Some of the defeated soldiers were thrown off the walls. Others begged for mercy, but the Assyrian idea of mercy was to cut their throat, which, if you want to get technically, was merciful compared to what they did to some of the political leaders of Lachish, who all met horrendously violent deaths. Assyrian art shows their soldiers flaying alive enemy leaders, and in case you're not familiar with flaying, and honestly I can't think of too many good reasons why you, why you would be, flaying involves removing someone's skin with a thin, hot blade. As far as horrible ways to die go, this is definitely high on the list, since death would arrive only after a long, excruciating pain that could last for even hours. In Game of Thrones, assuming that I'm still allowed to mention Game of Thrones after the horrendously bad taste that it left in most people's mouths after season 8 of the show, but if I may, the sigil of House Bolton in Game of Thrones is the Flayed Man, and it's extremely likely that it's based on the Assyrian art depicting the aftermath of the Siege of Lachish which I'll probably use as a picture for the episode cover on the website for this particular episode. Once the bloodshed was over, for the time being, Lachish was no more. Just a bunch of smoldering ruins. 
the same destiny met by dozens of towns throughout Judah, wherever the Assyrian army had decided to focus their attention. By now only one major city was left untouched in Judah, and that was the capital, Jerusalem. Sennacherib had left it for last. After destroying everything else in the kingdom, it was now Jerusalem's turn. Now, considering that the Assyrian army was now 46 for 46 in terms of their success rate at taking Hebrew towns, this seemed like a mere formality. It was almost a foregone conclusion that Jerusalem would fall and burn. And so Sennacherib sent the Rabshakeh, one of his most trusted officials, um, to go ahead of the army to let Jerusalem know what was coming for them. For a while now, King Hezekiah had made preparations to defend Jerusalem. It seems like he had wisely blocked off water sources from the springs outside the city. Some suggest that he may have poisoned some of the existing wells, the idea being to make the Assyrian army miserable by not giving them access to good water in the brutally hot climate they would encounter there in, around Jerusalem. And yes, if you are about to be under siege, this is certainly a sensible course of action. He also made sure his walls were repaired and in top shape, and weapon production was kicked into high gear in preparation for the siege. He finished checking all of his uh, siege preparation boxes by giving a pep talk to his people, inviting them not to despair since the Assyrian king commanded an army made of mere human beings whereas he himself, Hezekiah, could count on God's favor. Now, if this is supposed to inspire confidence, it seems likely that it only worked on the overly optimistic, since by now there was quite a bit of tangible evidence suggesting that the Assyrian army made of mere human beings was more than enough to tear Judah to pieces. Before the Rabshakeh even showed up outside the walls in Jerusalem. And by the way, Rabshakeh is a, it's not even a personal name, it's a title of a high official in the, Assyrian, in the Assyrian state. Before he showed up, the inhabitants of the city knew that things were not looking rosy. For a while now, survivors from across Judah had streamed into the city with tales of fleeing, just as the Assyrians were freely burned and pillaged across the nation. In shock, they would describe apocalyptic scenes of bloodshed, brutality and extreme violence. When refugees from one town would arrive in Jerusalem with this kind of news, it was certainly unnerving. But when this scene was repeated dozens of times, with refugees coming in from over 40 towns, all telling the same story, the people of Jerusalem could almost feel the noose tightening around their necks. Worse yet, each wave of refugees came from places that were geographically closer and closer to Jerusalem itself. They were basically the voices with which the Assyrian army announced its imminent arrival. But tired of relying on other people to deliver their messages for them, the Assyrians finally showed up in the person of the Rabshakeh, one of the principal commanders of the army, who made his entrance with his retinue of hardened soldiers just outside of Jerusalem. 
The Bible tells this story multiple times, in the book of Kings 18.19, in 2 Chronicles 32, in the book of Isaiah 36.37. Apparently what happened is that Hezekiah's officials went out of the gates to see what the Assyrians had to say. The officials were probably hoping for the ensuing conversation to remain private, but the Rabshakeh knew how to play psychological warfare. So he began speaking in a loud voice in Hebrew, so that the people on the wall could also hear what he said. Um, in Isaiah 36, he tells the story in the following way. Then the Assyrian's king, chief of staff, told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on, that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, you will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you will say to me, we are, we are trusting in the Lord, our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops? even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers. What's more, do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. So like a true verbal jujitsu black belt, the Rabshakeh was tearing apart Hezekiah's possible counters before they were even presented. So first he pointed to the lack of military power that the Hebrews had compared to the Assyrians. And it's kind of hard to argue with that after the Assyrians had kicked the Hebrews in over 40 different locations. Then he argued against the folly of relying on Egypt's help since they say it's an unreliable ally and there's a track record of that. And then he even removed the hope of relying on divine help, since he accused Zechai of having angered God by limiting worship only to Jerusalem, and even tells him that it was God himself who sent them to destroy Judah. This whole dialogue kind of reminds me of the Millian dialogue, which is, uh, in case you haven't checked it out, that's episode 43 of History on Fire, where I was joined by Daryl Cooper to discuss that particular dialogue. This feels very similar. Worried that his arguments may have sounded a bit too convincing to the people listening from the walls, Hezekiah's officials asked the Rabshakeh to speak in Aramaic, the language of diplomacy, instead of Hebrew. But the Rabshakeh was not in the mood to cater to their demands. He said, Do you think my master sent this message only to you and your master? He wants all the people to hear it. For when we put this city under siege, they will suffer along with you. They will be so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. 
Now, Assyrian diplomats were particularly fond of this kind of colorful language. In some of their surviving tablets, they have sentences like, uh, Instead of grain, may your sons and daughters grind your bones. Or, may tyrant peach be your food. May donkey urine be your drink. So, yeah, that was their style. Far from being done, Drabshake was ready to deliver the knockout blow. And again, I quote, Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, Listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you. Don't let him fool you into trusting in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely rescue us. The city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Darpad? And what about the gods of Sepharvaim? Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? And the quote continues, but the people were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah had commanded them, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asap, the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair and they went in to see their king and told him what the Assyrian chief of staff had said. I can sort of see why they throw off their clothes in despair. The Rabshakeh had completely schooled them in that diplomatic exchange. Speaking loud and clear, he had sent a message to the citizens of Jerusalem that even now it wasn't too late to abandon Hezekiah and save their lives. That the Assyrian king would treat them mercifully, which was an excellent move to mind the people's confidence in Hezekiah and their willingness to resist. And then the Rabshakeh hammered again on Hezekiah's attempt to reassure his panicked listeners with the idea that God would save them. With some of his most savage lines, the Rabshakeh laughed at Hezekiah. You know, he was like, everywhere we have gone, we are people telling us their God would protect them. Well, go ask them now how well that has worked out for them, if you can find any of them alive. That was kind of... I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's basically what he was telling them. The men on the walls may have been terrified into silence, or perhaps in one last gesture of bravado they told the Assyrians to go away and in my favorite insult from Monty Python and the Holy Grail also told the Assyrians that their mother was a hamster and their father smelled of elderberries. However it went down, and we don't know exactly how it went down, the fact remained that this dialogue had not improved anyone's mood in Jerusalem or 
or even made them feel better about their prospects for long-term survival. The officials sent to negotiate with him were not the only ones ripping their clothes following the Rabshakeh Brutal's verbal beatdown. When they told Zekai how the dialogue had gone, he also ripped his clothes, which apparently was a very popular thing to do to express how mad you were, and quickly asked to summon the prophet Isaiah to see if he could put in a good word with God, since his earthly odds of success by now didn't look too great. And something that happened at this point, well, let me rephrase, something that happened, but it's debated when exactly it happened, if at this point, if at this particular stage or after the conclusion of the siege, is that Ezekiah, realizing he messed with the wrong people, aware that his near future plans likely included being flayed alive and impaled, decided to throw a bunch of gold to Sennacherib. My bad. He tried to say, you know, I was persuaded to rebel by some bad influences. I fell in with the wrong company, but but now I see the light and would like for nothing more than to pay you anything you want. If we could just forget about this whole thing and pretend it never happened and we can go back to being BFFs. And to give more weight to his words, the message was went along with mountains of gold and silver. If the payment happened at this point in the chronology, and some sources say yes, and others instead say that the tribute, he had sent the tribute a bit earlier when the Assyrian army was wrecking the other towns, and other sources, to make it more confusing, say that he sent the tribute later. But either way, we know that he sent tribute, there's argument about when he did. Well, then based on what follows, it seems like Sennacherib laughed at the notion. You know, too late to say sorry, since by now he was out for blood. And this is where things get a little extra confusing, and ancient sources are painfully incomplete, plus they contradict each other. In some versions, the Egyptians finally showed up, but they were defeated by the Assyrians. In some versions, they never showed up. In some versions, they showed up, lost the battle, but then came back for another one with a better army. So, the picture is not particularly clear, but it seems likely that the Assyrians may have been distracted from the task at hand from having to deal with an Egyptian army. When I say Egyptian, by the way, it's a little trickier than it sounds, because at this time a royal family from the southern land of Kush, nothing to do with the cannabis strain so named, in our context Kush refers to an area roughly around modern-day southern Egypt and northern Sudan, they had taken control over Egypt. So at this particular point in time, the king of Kush was also the ruler of Egypt. But in any case, while this confusing business with the Egyptians was happening, Hezekiah went to the temple to pray and beg for help. It seems he made his case by saying how Sennacherib wouldn't simply crush him, his devoted follower, but in the process of doing so, he would make God look bad. So his prayer was a desperate attempt to appeal to God's vanity, saying, hey, how about a win-win? You save us, and the whole world will know that you alone are the only God, and everybody wins that way. And God supposedly replied to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, 
basically telling him that he had been, you know, he, the Lord, one God, had been the one to allow the Assyrians to be successful. But now that they were questioning his power, he would teach them a lesson. Or, again, at least this is the kind of dialogue that Hebrew sources say took place. What happened next... Well, there are many versions of what happened next, but we are about to go through the main ones. In any case, the point that they all agree on is that with Judaism just one step away from being wiped off the face of the earth, the unexpected happened. Against all odds, the Assyrians did not take Jerusalem. That much we do know, for sure. Within a few days, the Assyrian army was packing and heading back home while Jerusalem still stood. The obvious question is, how could this be? The Assyrians were masters of war and they would continue to rule a good chunk of the Middle East for quite a while longer. So why did they let go of a prey that already seemed within reach? The biblical version of the events is all about giving credit to God's miraculous intervention. There's a famous expression, um, Deus es machina, uh, in Latin, like God from the machine, which basically describes a narrative device in which someone, you know, what would happen is that if someone shows up in a situation and unexpectedly solves a seemingly impossible problem. You know, the term originally came from Greek and later was adapted to Roman theater, but it starts with Greek theater when the playwriters would set up some hopeless dramatic situation that was miraculously solved by the intervention of the gods. And in terms of staging these dramas, the gods were either actors in a costume or an object shaped with godlike features that would appear in the sky above the stage thanks to the use of a crane, hence the god from the machine. In this case, Hebrew writers tell that the intervention went down like this. The night the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. That's in 2 Kings 19, 35-36. Now, the number of Assyrians struck dead in camp by some mysterious means has clearly not a whole lot to do with reality or even a semblance of realism. You know, the Assyrian army definitely didn't have 185,000 people in the field, even less so if you consider that supposedly Sennacherib had some spare soldiers to return to Assyria after this was done. There was no ancient army from those days approaching that size and definitely not able to operate in a harsh environments such as outside of Jerusalem with those in that quantity. But if we make some allowances for the obviously inflated numbers, what remains is that the Assyrian army was struck likely with a disease that incapacitated and killed many among them. There's debate on whether this happened just outside the walls of Jerusalem or whether the Assyrian army was camped elsewhere, but this is the substance of the Hebrew account of what happened. The Greek historian Herodotus gives an independent account from Egyptian sources that kind of echoes the Hebrew one. Should be noted, however, that he wrote long after these events, 
and had a reputation for mixing legend and history. What he tells is that on the eve of a battle that didn't look very promising for his army, the ruler of Egypt prayed to his gods, so it's not the Hebrews pray, praying to their gods, it's the Egyptians praying to their gods, and being reassured that they would receive divine help. During the night, the Assyrian camp was overrun by, I quote from Herodotus, a horde of field mice that gnawed quivers and bows and the handles of shields, with the result that many were killed fleeing unarmed the next day. So in other words, divine intervention, in this case attributed to Egyptian gods rather than the Hebrew god, allowed a rather modest Egyptian force to beat the Assyrian army. Since the idea of tens of thousands of mice defeating the Assyrians overnight is more than a bit ridiculous, some historians have suggested that this account is not to be taken literally. Rather, they remind us that mice were a Greek symbol of pestilence, and of course this could correlate to what we, you know, what we know about rats being carrier of epidemic diseases. So, so far we have the biblical version and this one from Herodotus. We also have an Assyrian version, which unsurprisingly tells a completely different story. The Assyrian version was written down shortly after the events. The biblical one, there's no way to know for sure when it was written down. Either way, both had their agendas, and Herodotus wrote over 200 years later. But in any case, in the Assyrian version, Sennacherib portrays the whole business as a clear-cut success. Assyrian chronicles describe how Sennacherib crushed all the populations that had rebelled, and in regards to Judah, the chronicles state that Sennacherib destroyed most of the country and forced Zechariah to save himself by reaffirming his loyalty and paying heavy tribute in reparation. Which so far none of this is contradicted by the Hebrew account, because they acknowledge that Zechariah paid tribute and so on. In addition to massive amounts of silver and gold, Ezekiah made amends by giving up a whole bunch of people as slaves, even sending his own daughters, presumably as concubines, for Sennacherib's pleasure. The biblical account doesn't disagree with this part. It just indicates that it happened before the siege, whereas the Assyrian version made it sound like it happened after the siege, and the disease what made them desist, putting Jerusalem to the sword. So not exactly a full victory for the Hebrews, but also less than a complete victory for the Assyrians, since they had let someone who had defied them continue to breathe. Because despite all the emphasis on Hezekiah's submission, and his pain dearly for keeping his head attached to his shoulders, which seems to be confirmed by the biblical account, the fact remains that the Assyrians did not take Jerusalem. The only thing not clear is how and why the taking of Jerusalem did not take place. Historian William H. McNeil writes the following. He says, The Assyrians simply moved on. For the largest empire of its time, the reduction of yet another walled city was not cost-effective. Which is, okay, sure, it makes sense, but it still doesn't tell us why it was so hard to finish the siege. Why was it not cost-effective? And one possible explanation that McNeil includes in his thesis is the following. He says, 
for those of us who are disinclined to believe in miracles. The biblical account of how Hezekiah prepared for the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem contains tantalizing hints that suggest entirely mundane factors that may have provoked epidemic among the besieging Assyrians. So, basically not buying the theory that this was a plague sent by God to save his chosen people, McNeil suggests that it had to do with the water. That before the siege, Hezekiah had poisoned the wells and basically made it impossible for the Assyrians to find enough clean sources of water to support their whole army. So the next logical assumption is that some among the Assyrians had gotten sick when they resorted to drinking from contaminated wells. According to MacNeil, this could explain what struck the Assyrian army and made them more willing to pack up, abandon a siege that would take too long, while incidentally taking a whole lot of lives, and instead they could just gather up the tribute and leave. This is a very reasonable explanation, even though obviously cannot be proven. So it's also possible that some kind of epidemic disease had spread among the Assyrians. I mean, it's not exactly an unheard-of thing for disease to break out in the less-than-hygienic conditions that often take place during a military campaign. So maybe some disease weakened the Assyrians, who then decided to accept the tribute in exchange for withdrawing their army that wasn't doing so well. And this theory would more or less reconcile the Jewish, Assyrian and Egyptian accounts. The bottom line is we'll never know exactly why the Assyrians left Jerusalem. As in most things in history, especially ancient history with few records, the real answer is probably a combination of the theories put forward, you know, from disease, Egyptian intervention, lack of water, trouble in some other part of the empire requiring the Assyrians' attention, Hezekiah's paying them off, maybe even the mice chewing up a bunch of Assyrian equipment, who knows? You know, either way, the Assyrians felt that they had crushed almost all the rebels and received apologies and plenty of tribute from Hezekiah. So why keep the army in the field? particularly facing illness or other difficulties, when you have already obtained anything you could want from a defeated king other than he said. Sennacherib probably felt that Zekiah's head wasn't worth the price he would have to pay for it and, and let it go. To Sennacherib, destroying Jerusalem or not didn't really make much of a difference. But little did he know that his decision to abandon the siege would radically change the entire history of humanity. And he pushed the siege, killed the Hebrew king, and deported all of his surviving people, like his predecessors had done to the kingdom of Israel 20 years earlier. Almost certainly the same results would have followed. Being spread all over the Assyrian Empire, the Hebrew people would have likely lost their specific ethnic and religious identity and would have disappeared from the pages of history. Rather than the ten lost tribes of Israel, you would have the twelve lost tribes. And Judaism as we know it would have ceased to exist. This, of course, would have made it impossible for Christianity and Islam to ever emerge into existence. Again, it's worth quoting McNeil. 
Jerusalem's preservation from attack by Sennacherib's army shaped the subsequent history of the world far more profoundly than any other military action I know of. And in another passage he adds, figuring out what actually happened before the walls of Jerusalem so long ago is quite impossible. Sennacherib's boastful inscription carved onto the walls of his palace of Nineveh is a piece of imperial propaganda rather than sober history. And the three biblical narratives that tell the story of how the Assyrians failed to take the holy city were shaped by ideas about God's miraculous intervention in public affairs that few historians accept today. Nevertheless, the biblical stories, inaccurate or exaggerated they may be, were what really mattered. In all subsequent generations, they shaped Jewish memories of what had happened before the walls of the city. And this memory made it plausible to believe that the God of Moses and of David was in fact omnipotent, protecting his worshippers from the mightiest monarch of the day. So in other words, the miraculous survival of Jerusalem strengthened dramatically the position of the monotheistic faction. The seeming miracle convinced many um, that you know many of the Hebrew people, the Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, were right, and that their God was the real deal. Of course, not everyone was sold on this. You know, Hezekiah's son Manasseh who ruled first along with his father for a decade, and then on his own from 687 to 643 before Common Era. He remained under the Assyrian yoke. He placed an image of Assyrian gods in the temple along with bringing back the worship of Baal and Asherah. So clearly even he wasn't sold on strict monotheism. And the same thing happened under the rule of his son. However, more effort for strict monotheism increased under Manasseh's grandson Josiah. In 622 BC. King Josiah supposedly discovered the scroll of the last sermon of Moses, this long lost scroll of the Torah that tells that God will only accept sacrifices at the temple and nowhere else. And scholars believe that this scroll was uh, Deuteronomy. So Josiah started destroying altars to the other gods in the temple, imposing strict monotheism. All the priests who worship other gods were put to death. All of Deuteronomy basically is a strong, hardcore push for monotheism against intermarriage, for the destruction of Canaanite religion. You know, there are a bunch of passages that point in that direction. In one of them, it says, tear down their altars, smash their standing stones, cut down their sacred poles, and set fire to their idols. Um, in another one, in the Chronicles, it talks about how Josiah looked on as the altars of Baal were demolished. He tore down the altars of incense, of incense standing on them. He smashed the sacred poles and the carved and cast idols. He reduced them to dust, scattering it over the graves of those who had offered them sacrifices. He burned the bones of their priests on their altars, and so purified Judah and Jerusalem. He demolished the altars and the sacred poles, smashed the idols and ground them to powder. And, you know, you get the vibe, right? It's this hardcore monotheistic campaign to wipe out any traces of polytheism. 
The general agreement among scholars is that this scroll was not found, it was created specifically to push Josiah's monotheism, and politically was done to encourage independence against Assyrian domination. Either way, the collapse of the Assyrian Empire toward the end of the 600s left Judah trying to carve a space between the more powerful Egyptian and Babylonian states, and incidentally ending up getting beat up by both. In 586, the king of Babylon, upset with what he considered to be Judah's disloyalty, captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, ended the independent Jewish kingdom, and brought the elite of the society as prisoners and hostages in Babylon. Uh, Lower classes were actually allowed to remain in the land. During the Babylonian exile, the bulk of the scriptures that we know of today were written down, and monotheism was reinforced. By then, the monotheistic faction of Hebrew people, their fate could not be shaken even by disaster. They figured kind of the standard scene that become a theme in uh, Hebrew histories. Uh, they figured that if they succeeded, it's because God was on their side, and if they didn't, it's because they were punished because some of them were not loyal enough to God. Kind of reminds me, when I was growing up, I remember when I was young, there was a tennis player, a very, very Christian tennis player by the name of Michael Chang, and that was his standard thing for how he approached uh, his tennis games. You know, if he won it's thanks to God, and if I lose, it's my fault, which was an interesting approach to it all. But in any case, this brings us back to the big what-if of this tale. Can you possibly imagine the impact on the lives of everyone since 2,700 years ago? If you are to remove Judaism and later Christianity and later Islam from history? I mean, I can't. I can't even start. They would, the impact, the repercussions would be so many and so deep that it's almost impossible for me to even picture what the world would look like. So, quite likely, more than any other story I'm ever going to tell you, this one points to how fickle history is. And just one event turned out differently. An event largely forgotten today, such as the siege of Jerusalem in 701 BCE. And all of history would have changed. In light of this, it is perhaps sobering to remember that the trilogy of major Western religions exists only because the army of a guy named Sennacherib did not have good water to drink.
History on Fire is presented by Luminari. Infinite thanks for listening to this episode. To hear more History on Fire episodes, please subscribe to the Luminari channel on Apple Podcasts or directly on Luminari. And you do that by going to luminari.link forward slash history. That's again luminari.link forward slash history. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.